The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. Straight ahead on the program, it's earnings season with big banks reporting. We'll break down the numbers from J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo, and look ahead to next week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where we're asking if upcoming inflation figures in Europe will show signs of stagflation setting in. I'm Doug Krisner, taking the pulse of the Chinese economy and the challenges that lie ahead. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. The business news you need to wrap up your week in just one 15-minute podcast. Available on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program on Wall Street. We got earnings from three of the nation's biggest banks on Friday, and to help put the numbers into context, we're joined by Bloomberg Intelligence Bank analyst, Allison Williams. Big last week, three of the biggies. We have a lot more to come, but let's look back at J.P. Morgan Chase. Record net income interest, thanks to higher interest rates. It boosted its full-year forecast. And also, First Republic Bank, the remnants of that bank, helping uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. What can you tell us about the bank? So J.P. Morgan really uh, delivering very strong returns, leading returns. The net interest income continues to beat and they also raised their guidance. Um, they're also being helped by better than expected cost outlook. And really on the credit side uh, was where we got another big surprise. Consensus forecasts were expecting sizable reserve building and we actually got a modest reserve release. So across the banks, what we're seeing is net interest income better than expected and a more positive view for the fourth quarter. Of course, we caution that interest rate risks are rising. So while the run rate is good going into 2024, better than uh, we had expected going into the earnings, uh, there are still risks uh, to 2024 and the outlook. But on the cost side of things, certainly the banks are managing to those risks. And uh, as I said, J.P. Morgan also had a better than expected cost view. At Wells Fargo, they actually raised their expectations for costs. But I would note that in the third quarter, they did have some severance charges. Now, they have said that attrition is less than it's been in the past. And so that's some of the reason why you're seeing those severance charges. Um, But again, they continue to make uh, progress on the core costs. Obviously, there's legal risk there, and that could remain uh, volatile for that bank. Citigroup joined these two banks in having better than net interest income, but they kept their revenue guidance flat because fees are on the weaker side. Um, and again, so so that's a, a continuation from that bank. But 
in general, net interest income better than expected, run rate better than expected. We still do see those risks into 2024. On uh, the credit side of things, again, better than expected. We are seeing weakening in commercial real estate and office properties. Um, At the margin, banks are taking reserves for card. That's because they're building those card loans. And then on the operating expenses, um, you know, stable guidance at Citi, uh, higher guide at at Wells Fargo, lower guide at JP Morgan, net net, I would say. They are focusing on those core costs and do continue to get some Benefits. Speaking of benefits, let's talk about uh, interest rates and how they benefited the bank. But their mortgage divisions, how have they reacted to these higher rates? So the mortgage obviously has been under pressure, but given where we are, it's obviously a smaller part of revenue at this juncture, right? Because we have seen um, a lot of weakness in the product and Obviously, higher rates are not good for mortgage volumes. The other thing that that we should probably speak about is the trading and fee revenue at these banks. Trading, fixed income, proving to be very resilient. Equities trading a little bit weaker. Um, that's similar to what we've seen in the past few quarters. But on the fee side of things, things studying, and, that, and that's positive. Um, so as we said, mortgage is... A smaller part of revenue. Investment banking fees also a smaller part of revenue because of the uh, significant declines we've seen in both of those. But on the banking fee side, I think there is there are some reasons for optimism. M and A, I think, was really the positive surprise. Equity markets, we did see some good IPOs, but those equity fees still coming in weaker than expected. And we also uh, surprised me. Net charge offs were down, at least at J.P. Morgan Chase. What does that tell us about consumers? What it tells us is that credit continues to be very strong, and so yes. Banks are taking reserves because they're looking ahead at some of the risks. But for the most part, consumers are healthy. Um, uh, Commercial loans are a little bit weaker, but in general, um, credit there also remains very healthy. So we're seeing normalization. We're seeing a rise in charge-offs from the lows. But as I said, better than expected. Office commercial real estate is is something we're watching. We did see reserving um, on those types of properties. Uh, Wells Fargo uh, said about a month ago that things are the weakness is broadening out versus uh, a year or 18 months ago. So we are seeing some weakening there. But on the consumer side, it's really the lower bucket uh, where you're starting to see some weakness. And that's not a tremendous exposure for these banks. For these banks. And there are a lot more banks reporting next week. Why don't we look ahead to what we're going to see? So the expectations certainly uh, are a bit better after uh, the banks that we saw last week. Net interest income, uh, bodes well for Bank of America. We'll see if they beat and raise uh, similar to the other banks. We'll also be watching costs for them. Operating leverage is something that investors like to see. It looks a little bit tougher for, for Bank of America or, or did uh, about a week ago, but perhaps they can add to some of the, the, the positive net interest income story for the big banks in general. Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, I would say net-net. Again, the bar is higher because overall, trading and investment banking fees better than expected. And that's really due to the fixed income trading line. It's also due to better M&A fees. 
while equity fees are weaker uh, and debt fees, there's definitely are there's some pockets of strength, especially with regard to the high yield business. So Goldman is a little bit more balanced in their business. Uh, Bank of America leans more towards fixed income, but they've been investing broadly. And um, Morgan Stanley leans more towards the equity side of things. Um, But I would say that uh, the other thing we're watching at Goldman is some of the commercial real estate impairments. So we we talked about sort of the the provisions, but that's what we're watching for Goldman. Also specific to Goldman, uh, a little bit of noise in the quarter because they are making progress on their strategic goals of sort of moving back away from consumer, focusing on the core franchise. They announced the sale of Green Sky um, just last week. They have announced... uh, the sale of wealth assets related to United Capital, and they're done with the sell-off and the Marcus loan. So a little bit of noise still in this quarter, uh, but we think that they are sharpening focus bodes well. Now, after some of these biggest banks are done, we're going to see regional banks by the end of the week. And what a crisis we saw in the springtime. How have things changed or have they changed for some of those smaller regional banks? Going into the quarter, I would say that there was probably a shared optimism around uh, the potential for deposit costs to be stabilizing um, for the regional banks as well as the big banks. But again, that rising rate risk um, is a negative. And for the regional banks, they don't have the card exposures, most of them, that I discussed for uh, the big universal banks. And so the softer commercial demand is going to weigh a little bit more for those banks. Let's talk about jobs in the banking sector, because we know that Citigroup, Jane Fraser, is is restructuring her bank, cutting management levels, which we know is going to lead to jobs. Is is this just a normalization? Is it just her bank? Or is this something we're going to see throughout the industry, do you think? For Citigroup in particular, Jane is making changes at that bank and honing its focus. Um, and I think that the strategic or the restructuring of management is very much in line with a broader strategy. So I think that is per, uh, specific to Citigroup. For the broad investment banking and trading business, we have definitely seen cuts there. We did see severance charges. Uh, at several of the banks in the second quarter. We also saw some of those charges again being called out with the third quarter. I think that banks are resizing their operations, in particular with regard to the investment banking. Fixed income trading has proven relatively resilient. Equity trading has been a bit weaker, but both of those businesses are within a historically high range. So even though they're down a little bit, I would characterize them as healthy, strong, and relatively resilient. Investment banking, on the other hand, finally seeing some steadying. So I think that is a key positive, but the levels that investment banking is studying at are really um, closer to the pre-pandemic norm. Oh boy, a lot to look forward to. Allison, thank you so much. That's Bloomberg Intelligence Bank Analyst Allison Williams. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we head to Europe to get a preview of this week's inflation figures. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg.
The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, how China is juggling stimulating economic growth while being a leader on the geopolitical stage. But first, a host of inflation data from Europe will likely confirm the trend that price increases are slowing down. But with growth weakening, are signs of stagflation setting in? For more, let's go to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. Tom, here in the UK, inflation peaked in last October's reading at 11.1% and has been easing since, falling to 6.7% in August. But the downward trajectory has been uneven, so September's numbers will make for interesting reading. Across the euro area, we're watching for the final reading of September CPI, which has also fallen sharply in recent months as energy prices have come down. Of course, any sharp increase in oil or gas prices from tensions in the Middle East could upend that trend and raise the risk of stagflation, weak growth coupled with high inflation. That's a big challenge for central banks, making every detail of every CPI print all the more important for the ECB and for the Bank of England. In the last few days, the International Monetary Fund raised its forecast for where it sees inflation globally next year. In the UK, it expects the Bank of England to hike interest rates again by a quarter point and hold them at 5.5% for most of next year. That's a more hawkish view than markets are currently pricing. I've been speaking to Daniel Lee, head of the World Economic Studies Division at the IMF, about this, as well as his outlook for the rest of Europe. Well, for the UK, we have a forecast of subdued growth as higher interest rates bite, uh, but inflation is declining. And so we think that by 2025, um, inflation will be back to target. Our forecast for the UK um, has positive growth, uh, 0.5% this year, 0.6% next year. And that situation then you see impact in the Bank of England holding rates higher for longer? Uh, the the uh, rates are higher, not just in the UK, but other economies, higher than we thought six months ago, three months ago, because inflation has been stickier. Uh, so so this is necessary around um, for monetary policy to, to be steady, to make sure that inflation expectations remain anchored, that inflation comes down to target. 
Do your latest forecasts include the upgrades to UK GDP that we've had the Office for National Statistics do in the past uh, couple of months that has seen a significant revision to the trajectory for UK growth since the end of the pandemic? Uh, those uh, mm, national uh, Office of National Statistics revisions were issued after uh, we closed the forecast, but we did look and they do raise the level of GDP uh, by 2022 by about 2%, so less scarring than uh, was originally thought from the pandemic. But at the same time, we don't we don't see a, a significant impact of this on, on growth uh, going forward. So our forecast of 0.6% uh, for uh, growth of t- in 2024 is not very changed, and it's slightly above the forecast of other uh, institutions, uh, including the Bank of England. Okay, how does your outlook for the UK compare to the situation facing other major European economies? Well, the the challenge of bringing down stubborn inflation is uh, shared. We did do some analysis of the drivers of inflation in uh, across economies in the uk a lot of this inflation is coming from passed through into uh, other uh, industries from energy prices having gone up so much and the uk was exposed uh, to the energy price shock for, due to external factors so that's still working its way through uh, in the euro area as well though this is this has played a very important role um, more so in the uk and the euro area than in the us where uh, labour market tightness has been a more dominant driver of inflation. Daniel, when we think about Europe geographically, including the UK and and continental Europe as well, are we heading for a return to 1970s style inflation? Uh, No, we uh, see that inflation has already significantly come down since its peak last year. And um, it's coming down further, uh, down to 5.6% uh, on average this year, 3.3% next year on average, and, and back to target in 2025. Uh, and at the same time, we see uh, b- growth bottoming out this year, going up from uh, 0.7% this year to 1.2% next year. Unemployment has not gone up much. So this is um, a challenging situation, but we can see that with these uh, steady policies, uh, it's going to uh, you know, resolve itself in the in the coming two years. What are the key risk factors that we need to watch now when it comes to that trajectory for inflation? As you say, your forecast do see it coming down over the next two years. What could upset that forecast? Well, the the main uh, message is that risks are unfortunately still to the downside for growth and to the upside for inflation. Inflation could just be again surprising us as it has before, uh, being stickier. Wages now starting to rise to catch up with the the fall in the cost of um, uh, in the in the purchasing power right of workers uh, sticky services inflation is there if that happens interest rates might have to be held higher for longer uh, again and that could uh, potentially lead to financial sector tensions corporate insolvencies are going up commercial real estate non-bank financial institutions so this could uh, create a larger than it than expected downturn uh, in growth. Um, these are downside risks. There's also um, the the uh, question of how to, to face with those risks. Fiscal policy can also play its role by, by having a medium-term plan for, for reducing debt exposures. What, I mean, what is the key advice to 
fiscal policymakers to governments then on that basis. If we're going to be dealing with inflation for longer, many governments are still looking at, for example, public sector salaries, something they do have control over. Is the message restraint to those governments? Uh, broadly, yes. Uh, we are, as I said, uh, we, there's a upside uh, movement in growth for next year, but debt levels are still very high uh, coming out of the pandemic. And uh, with higher interest rates, uh, this is leading to increasing debt service costs. So safeguarding debt sustainability, rebuilding the budgetary room, and um, really strengthening the disinflation process by by moving in the same direction as monetary policy. That would be um, helpful, yes. You've outlined some of the risks that could be to the downside for growth, to the upside for inflation. Let's let's take a more positive view. Are there surprises that could come that could be good? What are you factoring in or what are you yes. watching for? Yes, and, and luckily uh, the overall perspective now is that risks are more balanced than they were six months ago when we were so worried about you know banking turmoil now we could have uh, an upside risk from the labor market there could be a uh, easing in uh, labor market tightness uh, by vacancies coming down instead of unemployment going up that's been happening especially in the us by more than we expected so more uh, labor supply coming in that would ease inflation, but also boost growth. That was Daniel Lee, head of the World Economic Studies Division at the International Monetary Fund. I've been taking a look at Bloomberg Economics' views on the inflation outlook too. They expect inflation in the euro area to average 5.6% this year and 2.2% next year. That's slightly higher than their last update in June. They expect the ECB to shift their emphasis now from inflation risks to economic risks and are warning that fiscal policy could become a more prominent issue next year, especially with the EU set to reimpose their deficit rules in 2024. Now, Jamie Rush and colleagues at Bloomberg Economics don't see the ECB hiking again and holding rates, in fact, until the middle of 2024. Right now, they're penciling in a first rate cut at next June's meeting, although there are plenty more data prints for us to analyze between now and then. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. Tom. Thanks, Stephen. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we head to Asia and look at how China is struggling to revive its slowing economy. I'm Tom Busby and this is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. With China still struggling to revive its slowing economy, how will it juggle stimulating growth and maintaining its role as a geopolitical leader on the global stage? And for help, we turn to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia's co-host Doug Krisner for more. Tom, in the week ahead, we'll get the monthly economic activity data for China. This will include numbers on retail sales, industrial production, and the jobless rate. Now, as we know, there are many questions when it comes to the underlying strength of the Chinese economy. We want to take a closer look now with Bloomberg's John Liu, our executive editor for China. And John is here in New York. It's great to see you. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So much of the story, I think, on the overall economy in China centers on the strength of the consumer. Now, we've just moved through the Golden Week holiday. Some of the high-frequency data that we have seen indicated a fair amount of resilience. Now, I know that the numbers that we're going to get on activity data for September will not reflect any of that Golden Week activity, but I'm wondering, is it safe to assume that the consumer in the month of September was in pretty fair shape? I think the data that we got for the the holiday period actually showed that there is a recovery after the end of COVID zero, but it's not been as good as people had hoped it would be. Even for that week-long holiday period, we saw a recovery in travel and spending to pre-pandemic levels, but still it came in shy of what the government had said it hoped it would get to. And so I think what that tells us about the economy is it's getting better, but it's still weak. It's not doing as well as people had hoped. And there's still a lot of concern in Beijing about how it's going to unfold. So domestic demand is obviously a big issue. And we'll talk in a moment about the the notion of stimulus here. But on the export side, when I look at uh, the numbers coming up on industrial production, what do we know about how well exports have been behaving? So exports have been coming down. And so that has been the result of uh, demand uh, in the U.S. and other parts of the world coming going more to places like Southeast Asia, uh, producers in other parts of the world. Uh, that's been the result of uh, not only sort of a, the decoupling that's been happening mm-hmm. between the West and China, but also just the fact that uh, costs are so much more expensive. If you're making shoes or toys or electronics, it's so much more expensive to do that in China than it is in Southeast Asia now, and it's starting to be reflected in the export. Is deflation numbers. still a concern? Is it still a problem? Uh, we should be getting uh, inflation data and uh, factory uh, gate inflation pretty soon. And that should show that factory prices are still falling. There is a lot of concern about consumer deflation. Uh, there was a stabilization last month, but I think that is still a big concern. There's a lot of overcapacity in the economy, be it in property, be it in just manufactured goods all across the economy. And that's going to take a while to work its way through. One of the big stories that we had last week was on Beijing considering the possibility of raising the budget deficit and doing a little bit more in terms of stimulus. Everything that we've seen so far, whether it's been on the fiscal side or the monetary side, we know it's been very targeted. What might a new stimulus package look like? So it's actually going to look a lot like what the older stimulus packages look like, which is mostly infrastructure spending. I think what's interesting about this new package that's being discussed is who's going to raise the money. In the past, Beijing has asked local governments to sell debt, raise money, and spend that money to build infrastructure. Now the central government, it looks like, is going to do that itself. And that's important because local governments are really indebted. Uh, they, they are finding their finances in a lot of uh, trouble and under a lot of strain. And so this is actually Beijing uh, 
coming forward and saying the central government will do this instead of the local governments, it highlights how much concern there is in Beijing mm-hmm. that the situation might be worse uh, than it has been in the past and showing a willingness to try a new way to try to combat that. There's been a fair amount of criticism already just based on the early reporting that the stimulus that is being discussed really doesn't do much for the consumer. It doesn't do much for the property market. Is it up for discussion maybe that those areas need to be addressed in a more forceful way? What has been done so far has been a bit of a piecemeal effort, a little bit here, a little bit there, like you said, uh, a cut in interest rates, a cut in the reserve requirements, some policies to help the real estate sector. Uh, Everybody's been looking for a big bazooka sort of uh, stimulus package. I don't think that's what we're about to get. What's being discussed it could be very effective in the sense that it shows a change in attitude. It shows that Beijing is starting to evolve in terms of how it's reacting to the slowdown. That could be more important in terms of the attitude or the uh, the confidence that it instills into the marketplace, more so than the actual amount of money, which, as we understand, is about a trillion yuan. It's about 150 billion U.S. dollars. Also in the week ahead, as I'm sure you know, John, it's the third Belt and Road Forum that Beijing will host where is the Belt and Road? Where is this process right now? And and can Beijing continue to make it a priority in the face of so much domestic weakness? So the domestic weakness, I think, is important. It really reduces the amount of resources that Xi Jinping and his government have to spend on the Belt and Road project, uh, how much they can finance countries around the world when it comes to infrastructure. The other problem is we've had places like Pakistan, Sri Lanka, that have run into trouble, uh, have not been able to pay their debt. That's been a real uh, drag on this initiative. The other thing is uh, Russia-Ukraine. And Chinese support for Russia has resulted in European countries. I think Italy is probably the prime example of that, pulling out of the Belt and Road. Europe's really pulling away from this initiative. And so the, the whole thing is starting to evolve. It's become much more of a global south sort of initiative. The Europeans are shying away. We're not expecting any big heads of state from Europe to attend the forum. Mr. Putin will be there, of course, and that underlines that situation. So that's a great point. And I'm wondering what his aim may be, looking to kind of fortify the relationship with China in both ways, being able to export a little bit more in the way of commodities, I'm thinking crude oil in particular, and then looking maybe for some investment dollars coming from China into Russia. From the Russian perspective, China is its most important supporter at the moment on the global stage, uh, diplomatically, economically. As we understand it, uh, there has been no evidence that China's providing weapons to Russia. But I'm sure if the Russians could get help in terms of supplies, equipment, technology, they would be they would look for that from China. It's very important for Mr. Putin to maintain that relationship. He and President Xi Jinping seem to have a good personal bond. Uh, and I think this is this trip is an effort to fortify that against anything that might happen. Obviously, President Joe Biden would like to see China move away from Russia. Uh, and this would be an attempt from Mr. Putin to try and avoid that from happening. We just had a group, a bipartisan group of U.S. senators in Beijing. And one of the things that uh, President Xi insisted in the meeting, from what I've read, he kind of downplayed this concern coming from Washington about China's intention essentially to challenge the U.S. as, as a superpower. 
Is this something that is a major shift or is this basically just been reduced temporarily that she does intend to do that at some point, but now is not the time? The Chinese uh, position has always been that uh, China does not want to replace the U.S. as the preeminent power in the world. I think this meeting with Senator Schumer and the congressional delegation shows is there is a greater interest on the Chinese side to engage. This, this was the first time that President Xi Jinping has met a congressional delegation in eight years. I think that's especially important given that we have APEC coming in San Francisco in November. Uh, we don't know uh, if President Xi Jinping is going to attend, but given this meeting, given all of the talks that have been happening, given the cabinet-level visits by American officials to Beijing— it does seem like that he will be attending APEC, and it does seem like that that is setting up uh, a situation where President Biden and President Xi could have a face-to-face. And you could see uh, some agreements reached there, uh, possibly, probably not anything that's going to dramatically improve the relationship, but it could greatly stabilize things. John Liu is Bloomberg Executive Editor for China. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself weekdays for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong, 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thanks, Doug. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend in the States, another round of important economic data in the week ahead, and we'll preview U.S. retail spending for the month of September. I'm Tom Busby in New York, and this is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York, and this coming Tuesday, Wall Street gets U.S. retail sales data for September. It could show that stubbornly high prices and jitters about the economy are forcing many Americans to pull back a little bit on their spending. Well, for what to expect, we're joined now by Anna Wong of Bloomberg Economics. Anna, thank you for being here. Happy to be here. So tell us, what... Are you and other economists expecting to see? Yeah, so the the general consensus is that consumers did slow down the uh, the pace of spending in September to about 0.1%, uh, once you exclude autos and ga- gasoline. Uh, so 0.1% on a monthly basis 
And once you adjust it for inflation, it's actually slightly negative. But, you know, this is on the heels of uh, several months of retails reports showing that, in in fact, consumers were spending and splurging over the summer. So... um, so, so that's what the, the general consensus is expecting. But um, our team overall agrees. However, we do think there's substantial downside risk to this number. Um, our team's view is that consumers will likely retrench in the fall because of that overspending during the summer. We have already seen that generally that, that the sentiment uh, of consumer has been dipping. So we just saw from the University of Michigan survey that was released on Friday that uh, consumers' confidence about their present economic situation has deteriorated significantly. And most of that is driven by the sense of, you know, uh, on well-being due to higher prices, especially in grocery stores and gasoline. Um, and um, I think that that is starting to really uh, show up in terms of squeezing consumers' um, household budgets. And we're seeing that in also, you know, their attitude toward buying uh, durable goods such as cars, furnitures, and just large ha- household items. Um so on that, I do think that, um, you know, given that um, the, the consumer finances are de- de- deteriorating, that we should be seeing uh, not just in next uh, in, the, in the retail sales data in, for September, but also in October and November, the trend would be um, zero to negative um, spending growth. Well, I want to ask you this. On, also on Friday, Citigroup reported its earnings, very solid. And one comment was that the U.S. consumer remains quite resilient. That's a quote. But my question to you is, is it all consumers? Is it just the middle and higher earners or, or is it everybody? And, and you know, I, I tend to think not everyone is the same when it comes to spending. Yeah, you know, the, the American consumer is always resilient as long as they can borrow um, and, you know, the typical American household is not known for their foresight. In fact, before the pandemic, the bottom 40 percent of American households was pretty much living paycheck to paycheck with the bottom 20th percentile basically go out, like spending more than they, they earn or save. So, you know, the resilience is not necessarily a good thing from that perspective, especially in an environment when credit card uh, interest rate is like on the high 20s, you know, it, it it just means that delinquency will be rising and this so-called resilience in spending will only last as long as uh, people in the, uh, who, who, who are not earning as much as they spend, uh, that they could borrow for it. And it's just not a sustainable thing. And, um, so I, I just generally don't see this resilience as necessarily telling you, uh, giving you any force signal of whether we'll be in a downturn or not. And also, in the past recessions over the last 40 or 50 years, generally uh, consumption is resilient even in a recession uh, because people just spent as long as they can borrow. Well, as long as they can borrow, I guess they will. And Anna, I want to thank you. That's Anna Wong of Bloomberg Economics. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning, 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. 
It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.